right, everybody. Thank you so much for coming along. Um, I just wanted to welcome everybody to the second of three panel discussions that are going to be taking place over the course of On Fire Climate and Crisis. Um, we had the amazing first panel for those who were able to attend. Um, thank you so much to um, my dear friend Shannon Brett for amazing hosting of that and for the panelists Dale Harding, Judy Watson and Leighton Lee. Uh, my name is Tim Riley Walsh and I'm the curator of On Fire Climate and Crisis and I would like to begin by recognising the sovereignty of the traditional owners whose unceded lands we gather on this evening and I offer my sincere respect to elders past and present as well as emerging community leaders and extend also this to all Aborigine, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are present here today. I would also like to express my gratitude again to the first panel that was really, truly fantastic. And as well, I would also like to pass my note of thanks to, to Liz Knoll, uh, the IMA's director, for the opportunity afforded to, um, to me and to all of us involved in this project. Um, it's uh, really just been an absolute pleasure. So thank you for uh, your trust and belief. And I'd also like to thank as well the assistant director to Leah Pierce and to uh, Llewellyn Milhouse um, for your um, undying commitment and um, drive and hard work. It's just been a total pleasure. Um, and as well, thank you to Alex Holt and to Sarah Thompson as well for all of their amazing work and to, of course, the broader IMA team. Um, I will be referring back to my notes electronically today, so please excuse what I think probably looks a little bit like a sullen teenager at the di dining room table, um, but I'm just going to try and orient keep orienting myself on that. Um, so, yeah, excuse that. Uh, the series of panels will be concluded on the 20th of March, which is the last day of the show with um, architecture and design in the pyro scene, which will be... Um, hosted by Susan Best, and will feature Kevin O'Brien, uh, Liz Brogdon, and Andrew McNamara. So I would really encourage everybody to um, come along as well and join in on that final panel. And, oh, this one's a little louder. I have to change my pitch. Um, we will also, uh, on that day, celebrate the launch of the publication, uh, which has been brilliantly designed by Studio Bland and has some amazing contributors, um, including Shari Larson, Amelia Barrican, Kevin O'Brien, Rachel O'Reilly, uh, myself, and an amazing foreword as well by Liz and Talia. At the end of today's panel, there is assigned time for questions. Um, I am also um, happy to kind of open it up if anyone has any sort of bright sparks and ideas in the middle and feel free to kind of, you know, raise your hand. There is um, a roving mic though and because we're re recording the talk, I'll just ask everybody just to wait for the mic to come around uh, before we start asking your questions so we can record it. Thank you so much. Um, now it's my pleasure to introduce to you uh, these three amazing panelists that are with us today. And uh, these are three exhibiting artists in the show. Um, we have Warabar Weatherall in the middle. We have Kinley Gray at the end. And we have Tintin Woolia next to me. Uh, Warabar is an installation and street artist from the Camilleroy Nation of Southwest Queensland. Uh, Warabar has a spe specific interest in archival repositories and structures and the life of cultural objects and histories within these environments. He has exhibited locally and nationally, including Milani Gallery Car Park, Ambush Gallery at the ANU Canberra, Metro Arts Brisbane, and uh, the Museum and Art Gallery of the Northern Territory in Darwin. 
Welcome, Waraba. Tintin Willia works across video, installation, drawings, painting, sound, dance, text, performance, and public interventions. Um, her interdisciplinary works, that's a lot, um, particularly on aspects of borders, are often participatory. Wulia has shown both nationally and internationally, including at the Istanbul Biennial, Moscow Biennale, Sharjah Biennale, and recently in 2017 represented Indonesia at the 57th Venice Biennale. Thank you, Tintin, for joining us today. And finally, Kinley Gray, whose work deals with light, smoke, metaphysics, and feeling. Kinley's work is often site-specific, site-specific installations to be precise, and they reimagine ways to understand the world through sensory experience and poetics. Working in galleries and public spaces, Gray has held solo exhibitions at Metro Arts, Outer Space and Box Copy in Brisbane, and also at the Walls on the Gold Coast. Before we kind of dig into sort of the discussion format of today, um, considering the kind of the framing of the panel, I thought that it might be um, fruitful to sort of begin with um, some brief sort of reflections on the theme to help structure today's discussion. In his review uh, semi-recently of Bruno Latour's Down to Earth, Politics and the New Climate Regime, Rodrigo Munoz Gonzalez reflected on the Greek roots of the word crisis or crisis, which means a decision or turning point. Reading this, I thought, a present definition of the word crisis strikes me as quite different. Today, the term is really entering near total ubiquity. Perhaps for the spectators or for those who are amidst a crisis, this prevailing experience really of a crisis is one of a sense of breakdown, of chaos, of confusion, and of indecision. Those who are statistically more likely to be at the front lines of global warming, especially from marginalised communities, are rarely if ever afforded an opportunity to decide. As Naomi Klein would remind us, such a state of distraction is ripe for manipulation by those in power. Many things have been crises, and recently it seems like there's been a lot. Many more will be as well in the future. Our present then, despite the limited duration we associate with the term crisis, is defined by crises increasing proliferation and indefinite lifespans, whether, whether due to inaction, complacency, or even for political gain. The crisis that On Fire considers is an environmental one, and the recent events of Black Summer revealed the scale of global warming's impact on the planet's biosphere. As Janet Reutemann inquires in Anti-Crisis, Reutemann states, how did crisis, once a signifier for a critical, decisive moment, come to be construed as a protracted, historical, and experiential condition? The very idea of crisis as a condition suggests an ongoing state of affairs. But can one speak of a state of enduring crisis? Is this not an oxymoron? End quote. This project's subtitle separates climate and crisis not as an incendiary claim to say that the climate crisis the world finds itself in, the true and very tangible arrival of the effects of global warming isn't critical, but rather that attention must be given to the language and the machinations that undergird the use of these terms, especially when they are open for manipulation. Art, amongst other channels, I believe, and I hope we can dig into this today, is one way for us to critique and to challenge these dynamics. So yes, we find ourselves in a crisis, most certainly, but one that's perpetuated by the dominant. The challenge now appears to be getting to a place where this crisis does represent a turning point, 
where a decision that salvages the earth is finally made. And it frustrates me that such a hope sounds perhaps naive or unrealistic. Fire is certainly used in this exhibition in a broad way, as a broad lens. And the element is having a really an important cultural life on this continent, and it has for an incredibly long time. And so it was important to foreground that in the structure of this show. The phrase on fire is symbolic of the seriousness of the situation, so allusions to emergency are spot on. Um, but I'll try to avoid saying the phrase unprecedented times so that I don't trigger anybody unnecessarily. Uh, but certainly in the shadow of Black Summer, fire and its increasing prevalence as a significant symptom of the broader climate crisis is a central key theme. Stephen Pine, of course, theorizes this quite broadly in relation to this term, the pyrocene. So within this and central to the show is an important recognition that fire is not at fault here. Fire is a natural thing, but it is the conditions in which it flourishes increasingly precariously because of global warming and how it is misunderstood by settler psychology that enables what Victor Stephenson describes as bad fire. So on fire represents, importantly, a time for reflecting on the past and the legacies in the present, the various behaviours and systems that perpetuate destructions of many kinds that inform global warming. So that, thus, I think you can feel, especially in the first base and throughout, a certain quality of foreboding. But I, I hope that it isn't too pessimistic, but um, I'm open to feedback. <laughs> so today, in our panel will really be asking a series of questions. Um, in an era defined by human impact on the environment and overlapping, perpetual, proliferating crises, what is art's poetic and critical capacity to influence change, to participate in decision-making, to guide society towards its betterment, whatever that might be? How do artists see their work in this new era? And is their belief in art being challenged or affirmed? As I hope this suggests, the show suggests the um, solutions for, to, it, to this environmental crisis really uh, um, begin by recognizing it as an, in, as an intersectional issue. So to start our discussion, I am just going to read very briefly from uh, a text by Elaine Scarry, who in 1985 discussed what she saw as the value of art. And I quote, Art, bringing a physical object into the world where there previously was not one, illustrates on a small scale what's possible on a larger scale. You imagine and you paint. You take something from inside your mind and put it out in the real world. From my head to my hand. From my head to your hand. Which means that what was once inside your mind is now shareable. Imagining a city, you make a house. Imagining a political utopia, you help build a country. Imagining the elimination of suffering in the world, you nurse a sick friend. The creation of an artifact, a sentence, a cup, a piece of lace, is a fragment of world alteration. And if you can make these smaller changes, if you can alter the world in fragments, just think what you can do together, what might be possible in community, a total reinvention of the world. So... Now that I've finished my, uh, my waffling, I want to bring in Tintin and Warabar and Kinley's voices, and I'd really like to ask each of them to describe a little bit about their work in this show and the broader interests of their practice. And I'm going to touch back into that thought of scaries at the end of our chat. Uh, Warabar, I might, if you don't mind, throw to you first and ask if uh, you could tell us a little bit more about 
your practice and uh, the particular interests that your practice explores. Uh, one aspect I would love for you to elaborate on especially is um, during the development of your work, which is in the, the first gallery space as you come in, uh, it was clear that you um, had been um, conducting some really important uh, research project um, that was going to be sort of central to the work and will continue to be central, I think, for quite a while. I was hoping you'd chat a little bit about that too. Yeah, um, hi, everyone. Um, just to, I guess, start off by talking about the work to get some context um, to the conversation. Um, I've been working and, and researching a lot around museum collections um, and specifically how museum collections document um, who and what um, qualifies as Indigenous peoples. Um, and by collecting our materials, um, that documentation then becomes a standard and then down the track, you know, the standard is something that, um, which is largely incorrect um, and through a white Western gaze, which is then embodied um, and adopted um, through different cultures and peoples because um, so much has been fractured in knowledges by the bare fact that um, cultural materials such as um, boomerangs, um, genetic um, materials, um, you know, th there's a whole kind of spectrum of, of materials that are in these um, institutions, um, largely that have been sourced from massacres, um, theft from grave sites, um, and then traded around the world. Um, and, you know, around the... Um, in the early days of, um, you know, social Darwinism, Australia was ground zero for that um, because there was so much stuff of, um, you know, Charles Darwin, um, Fr Francis Galton, all these uh, phrenologists and um, people who were conducting racialized science who believed that Aboriginal people um, you know, were the earliest civilization, um, and then all these other derogatory things. Um, you know, we don't have to get too deep into that, but um, because it's it's you know it's heavy. Um, but there's so many things that are written about us that are collected about us um, that, because of the fracturing and removal of those knowledges, practices, materials. Um, a lot of the time, there isn't a direct lineage of oral history to tap into to then re-establish and conduct cultural maintenance. So the museum, as a white institution, a very heavily Eurocentric institution, um, becomes a primary source to be able to try and reclaim some of that. Um, but in my research, there's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's slightly prob problematic as well um, that um, be the thought, you know, when cultural materials um, are collected um, in, in the hope of preservation actually contributes to their destruction because um, they're no longer in the community. They're no longer being used um, for their intended purpose. Um, a boomerang 
questionably becomes a piece of wood um, because the intent of the materials and the cultural responsibility of them isn't maintained. So um, there's a French semiotician, um, Suzanne uh, Briet, uh, Briet, something like that, I don't speak French. <laughs> um, but she um, qualifies um, an antelope as a document. So she gives the, the example where there's an antelope running in the Sahara, um, anthropologists collect the specimen, put it into a collection. Um, it's no longer an antelope, it's a document because it communicates knowledges from a time and place, but it doesn't, it's no longer there. Um, and so the same thing can be qualified to cultural materials, to um, human um, specimens, as, as graphic and, and abhorrent as that is. Um, and so I like to not only look at my own family history and, um, you know, with the hope of creating a database and, and getting things repatriated to our communities, um, but there's a, there's a conversation that a lot of people don't know. Um, of course, a lot of mob know that, but a lot of people in the broader community um, don't have that awareness. And so all of those plaques um, are actually from my country, from museum collections all around Australia, um, of materials that were stolen from my people. Um, and, and essentially by, by using the semiotics of a memorial plaque, um, from what I was saying before, when something's um, preserved or, or stolen, it then compromises the cultural value and um, knowledges that it communicates as well. Yeah. Sorry, I felt like that was a waffle. It wasn't at all. It was beautiful. Thank you. Um, thanks, Warobar. I think um, one of the threads that we will kind of continue to expand through the talk is um, Tintin's work in the show is, is, is in the same space as Warobar's, and there are some kind of interrelated themes that we can... Um, you know, loop back in and keep discussing. Um, so thank you, Warapa, for um, that introduction to the work and to the context of, of that first space. Um, before um, uh, chatting to Tintin, I might just uh, throw to Kinley, if that's okay, and just ask Kinley if they could just tell us a little bit about um, their work that's in the show and, um, and their practice broadly, uh, if you wouldn't mind, Kinley. Oh, I'd love to, Tim. <laughs> Um, my work is um, in this room behind us now. Um, when um, Tim and I were sort of first talking about this show um, and discussing like making a work and the themes and everything like that, um, I guess my thoughts were um, a point that you said in your introduction, Tim, that was like, you know, it's not fire's fault. Um, and yeah, that was, I guess, my um, departure point for making the work. Um, and like most of my work, it, um, I always tend to use some sort of element of um, something wonderful, like that's a little bit like, oh, or something. <laughs> so um, I wanted to kind of position fire um, in this way that um, you know it can strike awe and wonder, um, but also um, that it should be treated with respect and reverence as well, because it's um, you know a very important 
element, um, essentially, um, and only because of the fraught context of, you know, whatever the world is and the crisis and stuff is, that, you know, it's, um, everything's panned out the way it is. So that was kind of for this work, yeah, um, looking at this juncture between sort of fear, respect, reverence and wonder um, to try and maybe, um, for lack of a better way to say it, like maybe put it a little bit up on a pedestal and like in a, a place of respect, I guess, yeah. I was just going to add that, you know, in those initial conversations as well, um, there was some initial interest. You were like, can I do an open flame? And I'm like, no. So there's institutional kind of structures which... Yeah, um, I was like, can I have a smoke machine? You said no. And I was like, open flame? No. And I said, so I've got to make a work about fire, but I can't have those things. Okay, <laughs> I'll do my best. And I think the result is, is, is fascinating kind of for those reasons. There's this kind of um, this response that you get that's you're like, oh, God, oh, something's, oh, something's on fire in there. Well, the, yeah, the irony is I'm using water. Exactly, so. yeah. Um, before jumping to Tintin, Kinley, I just wondered as well, um, just for the audience's benefit, for those who maybe aren't familiar with your practice, seeing this work, you know, if you were to connect it back to your kind of interests more broadly, you know, what you sort of look at in your work and investigate, yeah. Yeah, I guess, sorry, the, it's very loud. Um, I think broadly I'm interested in um, natural phenomena, with mainly things that happen in um, weather systems or like um, physics or, you know, basically I'm interested in the behaviour of the things in our world that we can experience um, because I think that um, I have this cheesy idea that all the like, you know, secrets of the universe are just all around us all the time. You, all you have to do is look for them. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's um, pretty much my work in a nutshell is um, trying to... I don't know, I just feel like I can, I can see things. And, you know, like the, the behaviour of the steam in this room, for instance, it's um, water vapour um, and it behaves like smoke you know, and it's tiny, but it can be big, and it's just, I just feel like I can see the same thing in everything, and it, um, I know that probably doesn't make much sense, but does it, is that answer your question? It does, and that does make sense to me, and I think that that sort of focus on the sort of those small moments that you're able to draw the audience's eye to kind of their wonder on such a small scale by sort of playing with light and shadow, and I think is, is, is you know, one of your many skills, so um, thank you for sharing those points with us. Tintin, if you wouldn't mind, could I sort of turn to you and ask a, a similar question as well, I guess, is, is a little bit about your work, Some Memory Prevails, which is in the first um, space um, alongside Warabar's work, um, and tell us a little bit more about your practice um, and how you sort of saw um, the work's sort of relationship to the show's theme. Yes. <laughs> um, hi, everyone. Um, sorry that I have my phone on my lap as well. I'm just accompanying, accompanying Tim being a teenager. <laughs> so, um, well, I'm uh, going to try to go from um, the border, which has been the focus of my practice and research uh, for the past um, two decades. Um, to the Papilio Ulysses uh, uh, specimen in that in that assemblage in the room, in the other room, uh, which um, actually relates to death and the future 
for me. Um, well, I started um, working with insects, um, specifically mosquitoes, the same year I started my PhD on borders, um, and that was 2007. Uh, my method um, was uh, decisively to work with what I call iconic objects from the border, um, to sort of incite um, complex emotions and thoughts in my participants, um, to recreate um, a sort of border space-like circumstances. Now, um, uh, well, uh, mosquitoes, um, the, one of the biggest human killer, if not the biggest, um, is iconic. Um, we, uh, they, they incite our emotions and thoughts, and they are associated with the borders as well. Um, countless armies have been undermined by mosquitoes at the border, and that's why warfare becomes quite expensive, and that's why research on mosquitoes have been led by the military for a long time, especially the U.S. military. And in 1939, for example, when uh, the um, uh, insecticidal properties of DDT became known, um, it became, DDT became the, the weapon of choice by the U.S. military throughout the World War II against mosquitoes, of course, which ensured the, the healthiest um, troops possible. Um, and after the war, it, they, they um, uh, adapted this weapon of choice um, into um, uh, parts of their developmental aid worldwide, basically malaria eradication program, until at one point the side effects of DDT became known as well, which prompted Rachel Carson to write her book, her very legendary book, Silent Spring, which was very influential um, uh, to the worldwide environmental movement as we know it now, which is the background of this exhibition. Well, um, mosquitoes fascinates me as well because of their metamorphosis. I, um, I think a lot about metamorphosis and compare it with death and um, see, uh, think about how they try to sense what, how, how they're different. Um, well, in the case of my grandfather, for example, who was forcefully disappeared um, during the Indonesian mass killings, 1965-66, um, by the Suharto militaristic government. We, um, the family, um, feel quite unsure about whether he had died because um, his body has never been found. So thinking about insects' um, metamorphosis, it's quite interesting because the old body is sort of larval skin and pupil skin are left behind while new life seems to emerge from it. Um, what moved me to make Some Memory Prevails in 2019 uh, was um, my effective thinking about death, the border, and the future. Um, well, um, butterfly is also iconic, right? I mean, you know, they incite emotions and thoughts in us as well. Um, and they're larger as well. So, you know, um, mosquitoes are actually not less stunningly colorful 
than butterflies, but to see the colors, you have to see them through the microscope, which is less, um, not as straightforward as a butterfly, basically. So, uh, and also, butterflies' um, metamorphosis is more familiar to many. So, you know, like caterpillar uh, wraps itself in, in, a, in a chrysalis, and then um, eventually this uh, completely different creature comes out, which is the butterfly. What's really amazing is, is what happens inside this chrysalis. Well, you see, caterpillars are, um, it's a destruction machine, basically. Caterpillar, some caterpillars actually eat um, as, it's so much that they um, gain 10,000 times their weight, their original weight, in three weeks, in under three weeks, actually. <laughs> At which point, it will form a chrysalis around itself and um, starts uh, digesting itself practically. And what happens inside the chrys this chrysalis um, is that uh, a, a small, really microscopic parts of the caterpillar started being active. And um, um, it starts being active and it's detected by the body of the caterpillar as a foreign object and it incites immune responses in the body of the caterpillar, which in turn surrender and transforming itself into a liquid, basically, that, um, that is protein-rich um, and serve as an energy soup for the next processes to happen. Now, the, this, this um, small uh, microscopic parts and it's pre-cellular, it's, it's called imaginal disk. And um, the imaginal disk at this point starts to replicate into imaginal cells. And um, uh, uh, the imaginal cells eventually starts to network. They were basically um, not you know, connected, but they start to network to form body parts that will form eventually the new butterfly. What's even more intriguing in this process is that a study has shown that some memory is retained through this, you know, this whole process where you know, the body the, is, uh, of the caterpillar dies actually inside and becomes liquid, right? And, um, and so, yeah, some memory prevails across the border through that and into the future. Thank you, Tintin. That was putting us all to shame. I, <laughs> I have to level up. <laughs> um, that was beautiful, thank you. Um, I think uh, you touched on some aspects which I'm hoping we can maybe elaborate on a little bit as a group now, um, which uh, you mentioned sort of affect and feeling kind of in passing at moments there. and I. Um, one of the, the things that struck me recently in an artist talk between um, T Judy Watson and um, Carol McGregor, I think Carol was here today or, or was earlier, um, for their show that just opened at Artspace, was Judy mentioned, um, if you make people feel, that is when they think. And that's something which has kind of stuck with me last uh, week. Um, and I think emotion and feeling are clearly central to an art that seeks um, a more engaged spectator that has an interest in, um, in change. Um, so 
you know, this hope of sort of shifting perceptions around the seriousness of the environmental situation is one that I feel is kind of needs to be kind of directly connected to uh, feeling and, and affect. And I think each of you harness affect in a certain way in your work. Um, and I'm wondering if you could each kind of comment on this. I know when we were discussing this um, last week, that was kind of this shared ground that we found. And I wondered, you know, where does feeling enter into your practice and your making and, and, and maybe even in relation to these works that are in the show? Um, would anybody like to, rearing to go? Kinley's reaching for the microphone. Okay, go. It's just a habit from karaoke. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, I just lost my thought then. Oh yeah, affect, feelings. Um, can we a karaoke if you really want to? As I would well, love yeah. to talk about karaoke. Karaoke is actually a spiritual practice for me, and um, that's not a, that's not a joke. That's I'm sorry, I should be more serious. Yeah, yeah thank, thank you. you. Yeah. <laughs> No, I think um, feeling or affect or whatever kind of words you want to use to describe um, some sort of, you know, emotional responses, um, really important for my practice and I think really in, like, kind of at the heart of art in general, probably. Who knows? But um, for me, like, tapping into, um, you know, even just, like, a curiosity or um, openness or a wonder or something, or, like, all these things for me... Um, a generative or at least open because um, they acknowledge um, something that's unknown or something that could change or like a future like, like Tintin was saying and so I think as long as there's uh, an open-ended part of it, it um, that's where like little ideas can wiggle in and you know maybe like hope or whatever or imaginings or um, things like that. So in terms of, maybe I'm jumping ahead here, but in terms of arts capacity for to affect change in the world, I think that's the area where that can happen because you can't change anything before, like, imagining the change or before opening space for, um, you know, ideas or hope or a future, or, you know. So that's, for me, how that all works. Yeah, I th I think. What do I think? I think that um, I, th I think with my work, I I tend to look at scientific disciplines that deny feeling, that deny that and anything that can't be quantified or you know sort of labelled down or something. Um, you know, they're the thing that things that are discredited, but um, within a cultural lens as well, like that art making is also ritual. It's responsibility, and so they're the things that um, are still prevalent today. But um, it's kind of putting the trying to put the conversation out there that this is what we subscribe to because it's force-fed to us. But is that the only thing? And I think that in the, those conversations, when we we start to recognise that so much of this um, knowledge that we we support because um, you know it's just what's taught to us, it's what's available, um, then we start to look at alternatives. Um, and I really like that that um, thing that you said that Judy said of you know when 
What was it again? When? Yeah, and I, 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 I think I, know, I was, I was thinking just like when you were talking about on fire, and you know, um, my response was more within like um, the friction of of like political friction. Um, that friction leads to fire, um, but then. Um, when you were saying that passage that Judy said, then it made me think of like firing neurons and you know new options kind of thing, and I think that that's um, it's a really interesting space that um, I think the the contemporary influence of the art market as well doesn't really allow that. Um, I I can remember seeing work from like. Madonna Staunton and and looking at how beautiful it was, and I couldn't describe or, or Gordon Bennett, and can't I couldn't describe how emotionally moving it was, um, or you know like seeing other works um, like Mona Hatoum, and and seeing how monumental and and gobsmacking they are when you actually start to look at the the narrative that's behind it as well, and I I feel like those are the works that are so powerful because you, you're so moved. You're, it feels like a kick in the guts that you start to take notice. Um, so um, I guess that's my two cents on affect. Um, I wanted to maybe, before Tintin um, responds, is just to interject briefly. And um, I guess the temptation when we look at kind of thinking of Warabar and Tintin's works, especially when we think about these kind of... Um, scientific kind of clinical kind of um, categorizing kind of um, languages, these visual languages, it's easy to think that these are things which are affectless, um, that are without feeling. Um, and I think about Sue Best's research around affect here and, you know, there's a point in one of her books, um, Visualizing Feeling, where she says, talks about actually when people look at conceptual art, it's, it's not actually about an absence of affect or f absence of feeling. Those works actually generate a sense of perhaps coldness or anger or... Um, and I think in this kind of clinical aesthetic that there is an element of that as well. And that's, that's part of the work, is a description of sort of um, the brutality of these processes um, because they are um, so cold despite what they're doing. Um, so that was just something I just wanted to add. Tintin? I mean, thank you so much, Tim, for that. It's um, um, and, and also Judy for clarifying that you know um, um, uh, when you bring people in, that's you know that's when you can catch them actually. Which uh, what um, both of you, Arba and Kinley, also Kinley said something about the open openness, open-endedness um, as well. And um, I I would just like to add that for me, I think um, thinking and feeling are um, quite inseparable, actually. It's, it's really inseparable, like, you know? Anyone who has um, experienced an aha moment, for example, would know what, what I mean. It's, you know, it's whether it's thinking that leads to feeling or vice versa, it's always entangled. And uh, um, um, uh, there is a um, psychology scholar 
Paul Sylvia, who also talks about something called knowledge emotions, emotions that has to do uh, that uh, that uh, that's associated with um, thinking and comprehending. Um, conceptual art is something like that as well. And when I see Warabas work and I read the text, I felt in it my skin. You know, it's it's really powerful. You know. Um, uh, and so, uh, um, uh, and oh yeah, and Sylvia also actually um, uh, suggests that we need to look past pleasure um, in um, uh, past the you know like in seeing the sub sublime. We need to uh, look past pleasure into other unusual aesthetic um, reactions. Um, and I uh, I think um, uh, to link to. Um, your open-endedness and your bringing in, Judy. Um, I can share this uh, experience of um, a reaction, an, a, a participant reaction, actually, of my work. And this was uh, one of the stagings of Make Your Own Passport. So this is a wor workshop performance where um, you know um, people make their own passport, basically. Um, uh, and this was in a farmer's market, as usual. It was in public spaces, basically. And this man just suddenly barged into our booth. And uh, the booth is full of people making passports and passport-making kits, of course. And he, with um, his face reddening because of anger, on top of his voice, he basically um, um, shouted at me and accused me of smuggling people across the border. <laughs> well, which is understandable if I zoom out a little bit. Okay, so this booth is in the um, farmer's market in Windsor in Canada. It's only 10 minutes walk from the border. On the other side is the US and the bankrupt Detroit, full of poverty and practically no social security, of course. And, um, and it's, it's funny that also Windsor, Canada is one of the um, um, most important terminal for underground railroad where black refugees would, um, would settle after crossing the Detroit River. Um, um, in, in their way um, to freedom from slavery back then, his, historically. Um, and so, um, well, um, um, to talk about open-endedness, right? I, I think my point here is that um, as an iconic object, and any iconic object, actually the passport is just one of them, um, uh, human reactions to iconic objects it's not always the same. Of course, they bring their own history, they bring their own assemblage, actually, with them. And that's why, you know, um, uh, the more open-ended it is, you know, the more potential it is. And, and there is actually, um, uh, uh, I think, an iconic object here actually transforms its, its metamorphose, <laughs> of metamorphosing, actually, into something called a boundary object. The term is coined by Susan Lee Starr um, in 1989, and she says that the, a boundary object is, is an object that allows people to connect without even agreeing, right? But uh, a connection is a connection, 
and from that first connection, a further potential for further connection is possible. Um, so yeah, so uh, linking it to how I work with affect, um, basically um, this is in my methodology, I'll, I'll, I try to provide space for all these assemblies to be considered, basically. And that's how I work with not, maybe not so much just effects, but um, uh, entanglements of emotions and thoughts in my work. So yeah. Thanks, Tintin. Um, thank you, Kinley and Warabar as well for your um, additions and the, ba the boundary object, that is um, a beautiful term. Um, I wondered if we, taking a little bit of a pivot from maybe feeling, but as we know, feeling, thinking, interrelated, can't separate. Um, I wondered if we could talk a little bit about the critical capacity of um, some of uh, the work. Um, and one Warabai, I hope to turn to you just to chat to a little bit about this, is that you know, in the first space of the show, there was this kind of clear foregrounding around kind of colonization as one of the root causes of the environmental crisis that's, um, I have the word looming here, but I think it's very much here. Uh, and in the exhibition catalogue there, there's a description really of um, the settler state as being born in Australia parallel with the emergence of capitalism and the combustion engine. So um, the Watt steam engine um, came out six years after um, Cook claimed possession of the east coast of Australia. Um, Australia um, as a settler state was born um, imbricated with, with um, the emergence of, of, of combustion and of capitalism as well. Um, appropriately, um, prior to Ferry and Cook, the Endeavour was actually a coal-hauling vessel. Um, so I wondered if we could talk a little bit here, um, Warabai, about um, your engagement with the legacy of, of taxonomy, um, of museological acquisition, um, reflected in your work to know and possessed. Um, I wonder what sort of psychology you feel is kind of, you know, described in, in these processes that your work kind of, um, I think, examines and really interrogates so closely? Uh, I, I, you know, where to start? Like, it's, it's such a, a big, a big parcel of stuff. And, um, can you give me another, like, the, like, what do you want me to talk to directly? Just because I feel like that's so... There's a lot I don't there. know where to start Yeah, yeah, with sure. That. Yeah. I guess, um, for me, the kind of, one of the, the major points of the, the work's power in that context of that space is describing um, this behaviour toward um, approaching other cultures and um, approaching this country and um, the behavior towards it. And so, and specifically, um, this sort of desire to kind of, to know and possess, as your work says. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, like, I, I don't know um, how beneficial it is to look at um, history and points of contact. I think the actual, the conversation needs to be placed now of like, um, you know, colonisation is still happening um, and um, we all, whether want to acknowledge it or not, play a role in that. Even if this is not my country, I too, as an Aboriginal person, can play a role in neocolonialism if I'm not upholding the ethics and protocols to those mob here. 
Um, and so for people from elsewhere as well who, who don't have knowledge about that, um, or you know, the, I think that there's, there's just so, so much to, to talk about and to grow in that area. Um, and I think that we're still very fixated on um, fixing something, on a, on a hero complex of, I have to do everything and, and, and you know, this is the only way to do it. Um, and I think that that kind of stems from the breakdown of community and that it's not delegated to everyone to play a role and to actually build community, um, um, re-establish those kind of responsibilities um, and actually see the process and the need for what it, whatever we're work, working towards. <clears throat> um, I forgot where I was going there. Um, Can you give me another one? Like, just like, kind of steer me a bit. I mean, I mean, like, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know what to say next. We can, um, we can give you a little bit of a moment to percolate if you like, and I can, yeah, okay. I can shift shift gears to uh, Tintin, and if you, um, yeah, sure, let's do that. If the spark returns, let me know. Because okay. um, I think that there there is an interesting kind of like connection again that it's emerged between those two works is that you know obviously the index card as being this kind of um, you know this icon of kind of um, the glorification of sort of data and it standing in an absence for the object and you spoke earlier beautifully Warabar about these objects and their their, their their purpose and their belonging mm. in community and through use and when they're not there. Um, and so the index card, um, as part of sort of research um, for the show, I was reading up on Carl Linnaeus, who was the inventor of, of taxonomy, of biological taxonomy, and, and is sort of claimed as one of the originators of the index card format. And the idea supposedly came to him when he was cataloging the Queen of Prussia's butterfly collection. Um, and the disciple of his who was helping him at that point was um, Daniel Solander, who actually ended up um, joining Joseph Banks on the Endeavour mm. on his voyage to Tahiti and was on board the ship when Cook claimed possession of the East Coast in 1770. So there's these kind of curious um, crossovers, of uh, which I'm sure shouldn't be necessarily surprising to us. But um, I wondered, um, Tintin, you've touched on this a little bit, but I, you know, I think what Warabai was saying as well around colonization and really framing it as neo-colonization and you know neo-colonial neo-colonial desires for categorization, control, manipulation, um, borders, segregation as kind of a part of a colonial construct. I wondered if you could comment on that a little bit. Um, yeah. Um. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, thank you, Araba, for um, uh, that um, sort of positioning, basically, of the issue. Um, I, I think, um, uh, well, you ask about categorizing and um, bordering. Um, and I think, um, um, well, um, Okay, categorizing 
and bordering are quite complex, isn't it? Like, I mean, we're, um, I mean, my whole um, uh, practice is actually about um, highlighting this very complexity and getting people to appreciate how much more complex it is uh, from what we normally think in, in like normal, normally normalized, normative, you know, <laughs> uh, terms. Um, uh, border, the border, for example. If we think, we imagine the border in a very normal, normative way, we might imagine border control and passport checks and this kind of stuff. But then, um, let's think about um, what it means when we think about whose country we're on right now. This actually implies that the border is actually quite complex, much more complex than we normally think it is. Um, categorization as well. Um, so um, it's quite complex as well. And when we think of it as, you know, like labeling in museums, of course, it feels very colonial. Um, but then let's think about what it means for societies for whom um, terms of kinship is very important. And that, that you know, that complexifies it again. It's, it's very, uh, it's all very uh, complex. And um, uh, I, I think, I just think that it's really important, especially now, to actually look um, at the larger context. Uh, longer timeline as well, um, rather than um, an isolated uh, period, for example, or uh, or even uh, 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 just uh, uh, one society that we grew up in, for example, or um, <laughs> or um, uh, or even one species, like you know, human beings, for example, have been changing the environment since 300,000 years ago, and that's when homo sapiens emerge and of course we can say well okay but this now we're in a crisis and there is an accelerated um, crisis now it's accelerated but um, I think if we really want to understand this uh, phase of acceleration then we need to pull back and really place this in a context of a larger you know um, uh, uh, larger context, basically, earth-wise, space-wise, time-wise. Yeah. I guess just to um, pivot to Kinley before we kind of open up for maybe some questions from the audience, um, just conscious of the time because we all want to sort of celebrate. Um, Kinley, um, I, I think um, Tintin was touching on at the end around kind of this of consciousness towards the earth and, you know, one aspect that I think that in your work that um, is particularly effective and you've talked about is um, this sense of, you know, of reverence and this mixture of awe and fear and, um, and I wondered if you could talk just a little bit about the title of the work and um, sort of its significance for you. Um, well, I called the word, like, forgive my pronunciation here because it's a Latin word and I don't speak Latin, um, warrior, which, is, like, the meaning is um, it means both to be in awe of um, to be respectful and to be afraid. Um, and so it's close to the English word reverence, but I 
think it has a... I didn't... I think reverence had some connotations I kind of wanted to avoid um, with this work. Um, in my research, I've been researching wonder, and apparently the word wonder used to mean much the same thing, um, and it actually had an element of um, horror and terribleness to it, to the meaning of the word wonder. In modern days, it's very, um, you know, candy and sunshine. Um, and there's a lot of words in a lot of different languages that look at this sort of very specific cross-section of fear and awe. Um, so that's the time... I forgot the question. <laughs> that's what... I, I guess it was the sort of the mixture of kind of this yeah. awe and wonder, but then also fear and that yeah. not being necessarily a negative thing, but no. fear as, as respect. Yeah, fear as respect, but also fear just as fear as well. I think it's okay to be afraid if we're talking about, you know, like on a cosmic scale or on an environmental scale or even, you know, in a capitalism scale or surveillance or the police state or, you know, I think being fearful um, is kind of being truthful these days in a lot of ways. But it, it doesn't necessarily have to just be this plainly negative thing like I think fear is such a deep and rich and powerful um, emotion um, you know it's like death it's not bad it's not the end it's not like it doesn't have to have these judgmental connotations about it um, and I think that fear is also a position to be respected as well um, and when you mix um, I guess these sorts of um, states together with some sort of wonder or um, curiosity, openness. That's, I think, when you can get close to, I don't know, some kind of, I mean, words escape me, but some kind of like, um, it has something to do with your, your spiritual like soul and the the world and like and when I say the world I mean like everything you know what I mean so um I don't know for me it gets close to this state of being of um again I don't want to say like enlightenment but maybe like um fuck I think Waraba do you want to just start talking <laughs> yeah I, um enlightenment <laughs> Can I, can I throw in a thought to kind of um, segue to um, maybe broader discussion? I, on this kind of topic of kind of respect and one thought that which like jumped out at me in research, Timothy Morton talks about a process of what he calls humiliation, which sounds incredibly negative, but it, it, when you look at the roots of the word, it means to be, to be humbled, to be brought... Humility. To be brought low to the earth to recognise that, you know, we are not the centre of the world, um, and I think that you know, you know, in in perhaps in the context of everything that's happening at the moment, some some process of humiliation for for some of us who don't recognise that is 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 very important. Um, and I wondered, you know, as a way to kind of open up to kind of broader audience questions, as well as some further sort of wrapping up thoughts from the artists, um, you know, with that thought and with this sense of kind of um, uh, awe and fear of what's happening right now. Thinking back to Scary's kind of comments at the beginning, um, you know, do you feel affirmed? Do you feel challenged about an art sort of role right now? Is it is it more necessary than ever? 
Um, and, I would, and I'd love also um, the audience's sort of thoughts and questions as well as the artists. Thank you. I, I feel like it's a spectrum. Like I, I never feel 100% one thing or the other. Um, I, I feel like art has a, pur for me, art has a purpose and it's like the catalyst. Um, then there has to be work and conversation to happen after that. Um, and so um, I don't think there's a silver bullet. And um, yeah, I think that, I don't know, like sometimes it's just exhausting talking about all the negative shit too. And I'm just like, how can we be, and, and yes, it's, it's, it's important to critique the structures, the inequalities, to become aware of what needs attention. Um, and, um, you know, those things need people power. But we, we all play a different responsibility as well. Um, and I think that um, with those things, it's kind of like the institutions and all these bad things exist. How can we bypass that, create something that's self-determined by our values and, and build a community and then just do those things and then make that a part of our art practice because I feel like that's going to be... Um, more positive for us rather than going through archives and archives of all this torment um, to then react to and have a conversation to educate someone else when that's not, that shouldn't be my responsibility because that's my lived experience of colonisation. Um, so I struggle with that a lot and I'm kind of like, to your question before, like I wish I had had a quick response but the thing was like Sometimes that's just too heavy to talk about, and I'm just like, I don't know where to start because there's, it's tied onto so many social, economic, political, cultural things that you know it's, we, we need a week to have that symposium. Yeah, but um, yeah, I, that, that's 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 where I that's where I'm at. I, I, I really I'm hopeful that art does more, um, but. I think that it's only piece of the puzzle, yep. And I feel like, it, like in a cultural lens, it's always only just been a piece of the puzzle. That it's it's it supports a whole process. Yeah. I wonder as well. You know, I mean, you guys are artists, and yes, you make work. But and thinking of the the audience here, you know, we are audience members as well. We're viewers and. Um, Shari Larson's essay in the catalogue as well, which is coming out in March, as I mentioned, um, talks really beautifully about, um, you know, uh, spectators and viewers and, and a more active um, and challenged and um, engaged audience and, and arts capacity to do that. But um, I'm just wondering, does anyone have any sort of thoughts that they want to make? We've got maybe time for, you know, one question considering um, the time period, but um, I'm sorry to be so tight on everybody, but um, does anybody have any questions for the panel? One very good question. I'm going to be cheeky and be quick. Um, hi. So I wrote it out to be quick. So for you personally, each of you, and in your art practice, what does the word resilience mean to you? How do you feel about that word? And what other word might you use instead? Resilience, how you, how you feel about the, the word and... In relation to your art practice too and the role you see art playing in the context of crisis and ongoing crisis. Sorry, my ear, <laughs> somehow. 
Um, whoa, the mic is on me. <laughs> um, resilience. Um, sorry. <laughs> is it? Okay. <laughs> well, um, resilience. I um, uh, maybe I'll connect it back to what Kinley said about fear, actually, and um, also with something about um, uh, uh, that study that I mentioned earlier as well um, about uh, that that you know uh, uh, that some memory actually prevails um, throughout the metamorphosis. Um, and linking that to trauma and the future, our future. Um, uh, okay, <laughs> I'll try. Um, uh, that study, right, that um, has shown that some memory actually prevails through, through death um, across the border and into the future. Um, that specific study, the specific experiment that they did was actually to generate trauma in the caterpillar. So, so they generate, they train the caterpillar to have traumatic association with a certain smell, which is very, very useful in the life of, a, of well, maybe a caterpillar, I don't know. Well, anyway, I'll get to that. Um, so basically, um, so they train the caterpillar and they, be, they become, you know, like they uh, show some responses to the smell. And then they let the caterpillar go through the metamorphosis and then test the butterfly again. Well, in the, in the experiment, it's not the butterfly actually, but you know, like in, in the press about that experiment, people talk about butterfly because it's iconic, right? So anyway, so, so the moths that comes out were tested again and the trauma actually prevails. Um, so uh, um, some other studies actually have shown that this um, the, uh, trauma, trauma is inherited, can be inherited epigenetically. And in mosquitoes, um, this inherited uh, trauma that are inherited um, uh, epigenetically is beneficial for the mosquito's adaptability and survivability. Now, um, what intrigued me is that when um, uh, 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 studies on mammals are discussed, um, the discussion actually dwells on the inheritance of this trauma as disease, as disorders. So more um, uh, focusing on the mortality rather than survivability. And I don't know why that is. So um, that's just a food for thought, I guess, you know. It, yeah, um, thinking about resilience and how, you know, we deal with trauma and go, to go into the future as well, I guess. And especially the trauma that, that's actually happening right now as well. Yeah. I, um, yeah, I think that's a fantastic point to finish on, um, and I'm sorry to be the, the bearer of kind of 
um, time, but um, it comes for all of us. Um, but the trauma that we are, you know, conducting, um, <laughs> that's a bleak note. Um, uh, so let's go out there and, um, and try to do our best to limit the trauma that we do to this world. <laughs> Is that a good wrap-up? <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Thank you to the artists who've joined us today. Um,